This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. You're listening to the Qalam Institute podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasser Jangda. Qalam is pleased to announce the Sirah Intensive, a two-week program studying the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Visit sirahintensive.com for more information. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh So I apologize for the late start Inshallah we're going to be uh, continuing our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Asiratu Nabawiyya, the prophetic biography um, We had our last session uh, before uh, the month of Ramadan, uh, so it's been quite some time. Um, so I'd like to just kind of uh, remind uh, myself and everybody exactly where we left off and what we've exactly covered up to this particular point. What we've been covering in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, of course we started you know, even before the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, continuing on throughout his, ch- his birth, his childhood, uh, you know, the, the adult years of the Prophet in basically the entire pre-prophetic era, pre-Nubuwa, before revelation. And then of course we, dealt, we uh, dove into the actual period of prophethood, beginning with the first revelation and continuing on throughout the 13 years of the Prophet mission and work in Al-Makkatul Mukarramah, the city of Mecca. At which point in time then we talked about the hijrah, the migration of the Prophet from Mecca to Medina. Once the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Medina and settles a community in Al-Madinatul Munawwara, we talked about the first year of Hijrah, the first year of the Prophet's residence in the uh, city of Medina, and exactly what the Prophet ﷺ, uh, conducted during that time and the major events that took place during that time. Um, and then we also started the second year of the Prophet residence in Medina, the second year of Hijrah. Where we left off is we were about at a little bit past the midway point of the second year. Now, in order to be able to understand what we're going to talk about tonight, and the significance of what we're going to be discussing and talking about, what I'd like to just kind of refresh, or what I'd like to reiterate, is specifically the fact that the Prophet ﷺ understand in the history of Islam, and the life of the Prophet ﷺ, which is the most important period in the history of Islam, the life of the Prophet ﷺ actually serves as a source of our deen, as a source of our religion, as a source of legislation, and it also serves as the background and the backdrop for our entire deen. Because even the Qur'an and the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is coming down upon the Prophet ﷺ, it basically is placed within different moments and different experiences and different situations in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And the knowledge of the Qur'an is completed and is enhanced when one not only just understands what Allah is saying, but where did Allah say it? When did He say it? Why did He say it? Right? And we're able to relate to that. It humanizes the guidance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides to us. It becomes relatable for us. Because the Prophet ﷺ presents that human dynamic within the legislation and the source of our deen and religion. And so 
One of the very interesting and fascinating aspects of this is when we think about community, when we think about the establishment of a society, the establishment of a community, of course, you know, the period or the situation, the time from the life of the Prophet where that we, we think that's relevant to is the years of Medina. Because in Al-Madinatul Munawwara, the Prophet is building this community, he's establishing a community. So when we think community building, we look back at the Medinan era. Now, I talked about this in some of the previous sessions. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times when we look back at the Medinan era, the primary focus and the concern a lot of times and the emphasis tends to be in regards to the Ghazawat, the battles, the campaigns, the military expeditions and endeavors during the lifetime of, during the Medinan era. And so we look back at military expeditions and we say, well, that's the establishment of a Muslim community. That's the establishment of a Muslim society. When in reality, that's you know a part of it, but there's so much more to it aside from that. And in our detailed study of the first you know year and a half of the Prophet establishing of a community in Medina, we find that there are so many other very important and necessary factors which contributed to the establishment and the founding of that community that became the standard um, for all of time. And among some of those things that it's very important for us as a community to take note of and pay attention to was the establishment of the masjid, was the establishment of the bonds of brotherhood. So the Prophet ﷺ established a place for Muslims to be able to pray and a place for Muslims to be able to congregate in. Secondly, the Prophet ﷺ went out of his way to establish um, relationships between people where it broke down barriers and people were able to appreciate uh, having a relationship and getting to know somebody who came from a completely different background than themselves and that from a superficial perspective, they might not have anything in common, but they did have something truly profound in common and that was their deen, their Islam, their iman, and even their humanity. Right? And so these were some of the very important aspects of building and establishing that community. The Prophet ﷺ addressed the economic situation in the city of Medina. The Prophet ﷺ established political ties and relationships with the non-Muslim communities that were living in and around Medina. The Prophet ﷺ uh, established safety and security within the streets of Medina so that people could sleep at night feeling safe, knowing that they were safe and sound. So there were so many different aspects that go into building a very, very solid, healthy, fruitful community. So one of the things we also learned about this was that the, of course, the five times daily prayer had already been established, but this is when the adhan was instituted. Also in the early days of Medina. So now there was the establishment of the Adhan. And one of the very, very important things that we talked about that was, in fact, the last thing we talked about um, in the previous session, and that was the turning and the changing of the Qibla. That the Qibla, the direction of prayer changed from Baytul Maqdis in Jerusalem, Al Masjid Al Aqsa, to Al Kaaba Al Sharifa, Masjid Allah Al Haram, the Kaaba in Mecca the direction of the prayer changed. And that was another uh, step in the direction of establishing the unique spiritual identity and um, you know, a sense of community for this fledgling society and community that was being established there in Medina. 
One of the very important things that we're going to talk about today is, you know, as we talk about, and so much attention is paid to the political aspects of establishing a community, the military aspects of establishing uh, a state and a society, at the same time we have to understand that those things come into play in very particular scenarios and situations. But what really maintains the community are the ahkam and the fara'id of the deen. The obligations and the practices of the religion are what establish a community. And that's why salah was there from the very get-go, from the very beginning. Because salah establishes the community. Then to further strengthen the community and to maintain the community, some of the other arkan of the deen, some other obligations of, of the religion in Islam came into play at this time during the second year. So I, I want to go ahead and share uh, exactly what occurred. And then I'll talk about some reflections and lessons that we can take from this. And some of the things that we can also take a look at on how we approach these things within our communities to help us better understand and hopefully inshallah implement some of these lessons. So it's narrated from multiple sources. It's narrated from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu ta'ala anhu, from Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, and it's also narrated from Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. It's narrated from multiple sources that they all say, نَزَلَ فَرْدُ شَهْرِ رَمَضَانِ بَعْدَمَا صُرِفَتِ الْقِبْلَةُ إِلَى الْكَعْبَةِ بِشَهْرٍ That after the direction of the Qibla changed, after the direction of the Qibla changed, a month after that, basically they say in the beginning of the month of Shawwal. Because we talked about that the Qibla changed during the month of Rajab. And so a month later, in the month of, uh, excuse me, not Shawwal, in the month of Sha'ban, in the month of Sha'ban, the obligation of fasting in the month of Ramadan was revealed. This command basically came down. Uh, so this was 18 months after the Prophet's arrival in the city of Medina and the establishment of this community. So about a year and a half after the Prophet arrives in Medina, fasting in the month of Ramadan becomes obligatory, mandatory, and becomes mandated at that time. Now, I'll go ahead and mention one of the other things. Um, it also mentions in these narrations that not only did the fasting in the month of Ramadan, so what used to occur before then was that the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum had a few fasts that they used to observe. Siyam, Som, there were a few fasts that they used to observe. Number one, of course, they used to observe the fast, as some of the scholars mention, of Ashura. They used to observe the fast of fasting in Muharram, but some of the muhaddithun actually say that this command was, this practice was instituted later on. So the scholars mentioned that one thing that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum used to fast, that the Prophet sallallahu had told the Sahaba to fast before were three days every month. And those are called ayamul bid, the three white days, the 13th, 14th, and 15th of the lunar month. 13, 14, and 15 of every lunar month, that is what the Sahaba used to fast. Alright, so if you basically, you know, again, we don't really, um, you know, it, numbers sometimes are not very relevant and significant, but if you look at it, that's about 36 fasts in a year. It's not too different than a month, right? So they were fa basically fasting 30 plus fasts in a year, but spread out three every month. 
And now what happened was that the farth of fasting in the month of Ramadan came down 29 or 30 days continuously. And the fasting of the three days every month became an optional practice, a recommended practice, a sunnah practice, what we call in fiqh terminology, what we call a sunnah. It's a recommended practice where you are rewarded for practicing it, but you are not sinful for not doing so. And so this was instituted at this time. And with the beginning of the month of Ramadan, so basically they were given like a month's notice that you will have to fast in about a month, you will have to fast for 30 days, 29 or 30 days consecutively. Number two, and so when, when we're going to talk a little bit more about the month of Ramadan because during that Ramadan of the second year is basically when the battle of Badr occurs. And we're going to be talking about that. But I'm going to jump forward a little bit. When they fasted that month of Ramadan, that very first year, about two or three days before the end of the month. So that basically means on the 26th or the 27th of that month of Ramadan, the Prophet ﷺ gathered the Sahaba عنهم, in the masjid and he sat uh, on the mimbar, and at that time the Prophet ﷺ instructed them of another obligatory mandatory practice. And that was what we call zakatul fitr or sadaqatul fitr. Alright? And that was basically the, uh, the practice of giving the fitr. Zakatul fitr or sadaqatul fitr. What is zakatul fitr? What is sadaqatul fitr? I'm not going to turn this into a fiqh lesson. But basically, to explain, the Prophet ﷺ mentioned different quantities of food. The, the basic quantity that he mentioned was sa'. Sa' in the Arabic language is what you call two handfuls of something. It was a classical measurement, and it's very interesting because typically we measure things through weight. Our idea of measuring food is we measure it by weight. But uh, in the ancient Arab times, they used to uh, measure food by volume. They would measure food not, not just by quantity, if it was bigger items, quantity. Um, and some things they would measure by weight, but food items they would measure basically by volume. And that was two handfuls. And that was called a saw. So the Prophet ﷺ said, providing a saw of food to somebody who is, you know, in need of it within the community. And the Prophet ﷺ even mentions this. He says, "Ughnuhum yani al-masakina an tawafi hadha al-yom." The Prophet ﷺ said that free them from having to go around and look for food on this day, basically the day of Eid. Free them from that. Meaning these are your brothers and sisters, these are your community members, these are people in, in your community, relieve them from the need of having to worry and search for food on the happy and the joyous occasion of Eid. And so give it. And then the Prophet ﷺ basically would distribute it so that people received it before Eid al-Fitr. Um, and so this practice of zakatul fitr or sadaqatul fitr was also instituted during the very first Ramadan in the second year of the Prophet Wasallam's residence in the city of Medina. And um, of course the virtues of zakatul fitr we're all familiar with. The Prophet Wasallam said that it, um, it basically... Uh, it's reparations for any shortcomings that there may have been in someone's fast. Someone's fasting, any shortcomings that you may have had, this helps to make up for that shortcoming. Similarly, now I'm jumping forward a couple of more months here, just because I want to talk about all this stuff together. The Prophet ﷺ, during the second year of his residence in Medina, this was also when the Prophet ﷺ instituted the practice of udhiyah. So the two Eids which were implemented at this time, the first Eid of course being at the conclusion of the month of Ramadan, Eid al-Fitr, 
Alright, and the second Eid was Eid al-Adha, alright, in the month of the Hijjah, which we're coming very close to. And there is the obligation of Udhiyah, that obligation was mandated, that practice was mandated during this year. That anybody again who is a... F- proper financial means. There's a little bit of disagreement between the fuqaha. Majority of the fuqaha say every single person who is of sound financial means, basically what we call sahibun nisab, somebody who is capable of giving, qualifies to give zakat, each and every single person has to offer at least one share of a sacrifice. Smaller animals, goats or sheep are one share. Larger animals such as cattle or camels are seven shares. Every person has to offer one share. A minority of the scholars in the fuqaha basically say that no, there's only one sacrifice on behalf of every single household and they have their own, both have their own evidences and that's another discussion for another day uh, better addressed by Imam Zia, the, the Imam here uh, but nevertheless the practice of Udhiyah was instituted during the second year of the Prophet ﷺ's residence in Medina and so now we have basically three obligations that came down in the second year and I want you to really really pay attention to this fact Fasting in the month of Ramadan, paying the zakat al-fitr, the sadaqat al-fitr at the end of the month of Ramadan, and also the udhiyah, the sacrifice that is made at the time of Eid al-Adha, which is such a serious obligation that the Prophet ﷺ said that if somebody qualifies to give the sacrifice, make the sacrifice, and that person does not intend to make the sacrifice, the Prophet ﷺ said, فَلَا يَحْدُرْ مُصَلَّانَا That person should not come and pray with us. That person should not come and pray with us. I want you to understand the severity. The Messenger wasallam. if you've you know, read the seerah on your own, or if you've been keeping up with the podcast, or if you haven't, go back and listen to it. One of the things that you obviously realize that's very, very, uh, that jumps out at you, that is um, you know, so obvious within the seerah, one of the first things you take away from the study of the life of the Prophet wasallam is the mercy of the Messenger wasallam. The kindness of the Prophet ﷺ, the generosity of Rasulullah ﷺ, the love, compassion, the understanding of the Prophet ﷺ. Where he was always accepting people, forgiving people, making a way for people, that was the natural disposition of the Messenger ﷺ. And the Qur'an reaffirms that. Divine revelation reaffirms that. So when you combine divine revelation, which is mercy through and through, and you combine that with the mercy of the Messenger ﷺ, the product of that is just nothing but mercy. And think about the most merciful man that has ever walked the face of this earth. This man embodied mercy to the extent where Allah would call him a mercy. Allah who is the creator of mercy, who is the ultimate merciful, would call the Prophet ﷺ a mercy. Think about how merciful the Messenger ﷺ is. Now imagine that the Prophet ﷺ says that somebody who is not willing to make a sacrifice at the time of Eid al-Adha, فَلَا musallana, That person should not come and pray with us. That is very, very serious. Something we should take very seriously. So these three obligations came down at this time. And the other um, aspect of this is, of course, um, so I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second. But what I wanted to mention here is what the Prophet um you know, practiced on that very first Eid that occurred. So 
one of the things obviously that I'm mentioning, I've talked about Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha, so this was obviously again the first time that the Eid prayer was instituted. And what the Prophet ﷺ did was, he commanded everybody to go and pray Eid. Women, children, young and old, everyone, anyone. And um, you know, just uh, I'll refer to this as appropriately as I can. But the Prophet ﷺ even mentioned that women who are not able to pray, they are in their ayam of hayb, that they are in during their days of menstruation and they're not able to pray. The Prophet ﷺ said even those women should join and come out for their Eid prayer. Even they should join the community and the congregation. So meaning that the Prophet ﷺ said, this is for the entire community. Everybody come out. And takbirat and glorifying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Prophet ﷺ, they used to go a little bit outside. They were not praying in the masjid. They would go a little bit outside into a big open field and area to accommodate everyone. And to really kind of make an occasion, a special occasion out of this. And the Prophet ﷺ would lead the prayer first and then give the khutbah. And when the Prophet ﷺ in the prayer, he would say extra takbirat, which again anyone who's praying, prayed Eid is familiar with. And when the Prophet ﷺ stood to give the khutbah, it's mentioned that Zubair ibn al-Awam radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who is the cousin of the Prophet ﷺ, he was one of the early Muslims and he was one amongst the Muslims that had migrated to Abyssinia, East Africa, Habasha. When he migrated there, he basically came back with kind of a staff, anaza, a staff or a stick, like a walking stick, a staff. He came back from there with one of these, he gave it to the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he stood for khutbah, he stood with that staff in front of him. He held that staff and he stood, and the Prophet ﷺ delivered the khutbah. And after delivering the khutbah, the Prophet ﷺ then went to go offer his sacrifice. Now I want to mention this only, not only because this is the first example of this sacrifice being conducted. That the Prophet ﷺ, whenever he taught anyone anything, all of the arkan of our deen and the practices of our deen in Islam, they were taught in a very beautiful manner where the Prophet ﷺ wouldn't just tell people what to do, but then he would stand up and do it himself. And he would lead by example and he would teach people practically on how to do it. And that of course we understand is the the best teaching methodology as well, where you do something and you show someone how to practice it or do it. And that's how the Prophet ﷺ used to teach. And so the Prophet ﷺ went, um, he asked for two, uh, basically two sheep, uh, two rams or two sheep were brought to the Prophet ﷺ. And when they were brought to the Prophet ﷺ, he sacrificed the animals. First he sacrificed the first one and the Prophet ﷺ said, هَذَا عَنْ أُمَّتِي جَمِيعًا هَذَا عَنْ أُمَّتِي جَمِيعًا This is on behalf of my entire ummah. Then he sacrificed the second one and he said, um, ثُمَّ يُؤْتَى بِالْآخِرِ فَيَذْبَحُهُ هُوَ عَنْ نَفْسِهِ ثُمَّ يَقُولْ هَذَا عَنْ مُحَمَّدْ وَآلِ مُحَمَّدْ and then he would sacrifice the second sheep and he would say, this is from Muhammad and the family of Muhammad. And this was a regular practice every single year. So the Prophet ﷺ was in Medina for eight more years after this, of course, uh, minus the year that he was in Mecca for Hajjat al-Wida'ah. Right? But basically for eight more years after this, the Prophet ﷺ performed sacrifices. Whenever he sacrificed an animal, every single Eid al-Adha, he would sacrifice a minimum of two animals. And he would, for the first one, he would always say, this is on behalf of my ummah. In one narration he says, this is on behalf of my ummah, the people in my ummah who will not be able to offer a sacrifice on behalf of themselves. 
And then he would sacrifice one for himself and his family. And so we see again the mercy and the compassion of the Prophet ﷺ that he would think of us before he thought of himself. He would think of us before he thought of his own family members. And that, was the, that, that, that is who the Prophet ﷺ is. And this is what we learn and this is what we understand when we read his life and we study the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So... This was the third practice that the Prophet ﷺ instituted during the second year. Now before I talk about um, the next uh, you know, event, what I'd like to do is kind of take a very quick pause here. And I wanted to make sure that we understand, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I'd like to kind of um, point it out and really understand this properly and discuss this issue. I was talking about the building and the establishing and the maintaining and the sustaining of a community. Right? Community is something we all talk about. We all talk about how to build a community, how to establish a community. Everybody's got different thoughts, different ideas. We need to have an email group. Right? Maybe let's start a Facebook page. Let's build a masjid. Let's, do, let's have a picnic. Let's have a dinner. Let's do this. There's all these different ideas about community building. The Prophet ﷺ teaches us through his own prophetic example, the priorities in terms of establishing a community. And the Prophet ﷺ established a community by means of ibadah and worship and spiritual identity. Because you have to understand ultimately that you know, uh, different people within the community might not, have, might not have anything in common, right? They could be of different ethnicities, they could even speak different languages, they could have different occupations, different educational backgrounds, even maybe different methodologies or ideologies of the practice of the deen and the religion. There are so many variables and so many differences amongst us. The thing that unites us and combines us together is our iman is our faith and our belief and our obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our following of the prophetic example, the example of the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That is what unifies us and that is what brings us together. That is what we need to strengthen and unify. It's a very simple logic, it's a very basic uh, example. That if two things are held together by you know, some type of a bonding force or a bonding agent, right? If two things are glued together, and they fall apart, what do you do? You apply more glue. If something is, two things are nailed together, and they come loose of one another, what do you do? You take another nail and you hammer it in. It's a very simple logic, it's not rocket science. Well, what brings all of us together is not our jobs, not our occupations, not our educations, not our ethnicities, not, not any of these things. What brings us together is our iman. And the more we strengthen that iman, and we strengthen that Islam, the closer it will bring us together. And so the Prophet ﷺ is establishing prayer, establishing a masjid, instituting the adhan. Now fasting is becoming obligatory and mandatory. So everybody's waking up before fajr, and eating suhoor at the same time, and then walking to the masjid together. You know, asking each other, how's it going? How was your fast yesterday? How's it going? What do you have for suhoor today? What do you have for suhoor? Right? Everyone's... Um, exp- everyone's basically bonding through this experience and everyone's fasting and everyone's breaking their fast together then keep in mind w- w- again this is kind of my qualm my, my, my issue with how we study the life of the Prophet ﷺ a lot of times is we kind of make a bullet point out of it and we just move right on fasting in Ramadan became mandatory during the second year of the Hijrah next 
What does that mean? Well, well, let's, let's take a look at exactly everything we know about Ramadan and everything the Prophet ﷺ taught us about the month of Ramadan. So what are some of the things we know about the month of Ramadan? Number one, not only is it fasting, so everyone's fasting, so everyone is not eating or drinking water during the day. Everyone's experiencing something together. Everyone's experiencing something together. Right? Everyone is, you know, um, kind of sharing their Ramadan experience together. Then we see that the Prophet ﷺ encourages people. There are a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ says that providing the iftar, providing like some food or water or drink to break fast, for somebody else, you get the reward of fasting. Like you get your own fasting and fasting on behalf of the reward on behalf of that other person. So meaning the Prophet ﷺ is encouraging people to you know, host one another for iftar, for breaking the fast. The Prophet ﷺ teaches us a dua. أَفْتَرَ عِنْدَكُمُ السَّائِمُونَ وَأَكَلَ تَعَامَكُمُ الْأَبْرَارِ right? وَصَلَّتَ عَلَيْكُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ the, uh, the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us a dua. That when somebody hosts you for iftar, somebody provides food for you to break your fast, and this is a dua you make for them. So meaning now the Prophet ﷺ is encouraging, break your fast together. Now again, think about the community that builds. People are breaking their fast together in the masjid, in each other's homes, inviting over one another, sitting together and breaking their fast together. So think about the community that develops. And then of course the practice and the prayer of taraweeh is instituted. So now everyone's praying at night together, more than usual, more than ordinarily. Right? And so again, that's establishing that community. Then the itikaf. You know, secluding yourself, isolating yourself, uh, uh, confining yourself to the confines of the masjid for the last 10 days and nights of the month of Ramadan. They're basically all um, conducting that practice as well. So now for 10 days, everybody is in a retreat together. Spending day and night, morning and evening, everything together, living together, eating together, praying together. And so think about the type of community that establishes. We all experience it every Ramadan. Every Ramadan is this unbelievable life-changing experience. Think about what type of community that established for them. Right? And so that's what the Prophet ﷺ instituted. But then, the Prophet ﷺ doesn't stop there. But then the Sadaqatul Fitr, the Zakatul Fitr that becomes instituted. Right, so that's now saying that now Eid is coming. So some of you are blessed by Allah, are privileged. You will enjoy a good happy Eid. You will cook special food. You will wear nice clothes. You'll enjoy yourself. Right, but we have brothers and sisters in our community that might not have that, you know, that luxury, that opportunity, that blessing. So now you make a sacrifice where you give some of your own food that's in your home to your brother and sister as a gift. So that they may also experience Eid and enjoy themselves on Eid. So then again, this aspect of community is being established. And then the Udhiyah. Right? Again, that meat that is being sacrificed, and then people are giving them some of the meat. Like the, the, the scholars, they actually write that even from the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba, the Tabi'un, and this has basically been a standard practice within the Ummah, that generally speaking, when they would sacrifice an animal, it's not mandatory this division, but this was the general practice that they would distribute their meat into about three portions. Right? That actually in the early days of Islam, the Prophet ﷺ, this animal of the sacrifice, he said all the meat has to be given away. 
All the meat has to be given over. Later on, then he allowed them. He said, I told you that you could not keep the meat in your home. But you are not allowed to keep some of it. So think about it. In the very beginning, in the, when the udhiyah was done and the animal was sacrificed, all of the meat would be distributed to, to other people throughout the community, especially the poor and the needy. Right? And so again, that sense of community is being built and established. And that sense of community is not being built and established on a political basis or an ethnic basis or a social basis. It's being established on a spiritual foundation. That's an unshakable foundation. And that's the beauty of this prophetic model. And that's why we're studying it. Now one of the other nuances of this instituting these major practices. So one of the things I pointed out about fasting is, they used to fast three days every month, which is 36 fasts, right? Now they're fasting 29 or 30 days consecutively. But it's not too far off of a number. And in fact, some of the scholars actually say that that's part of the wisdom of why the Prophet ﷺ recommended the six fasts of Shawwal. To help maintain still that number of 36. Alright? But what I want to basically explain is that we see that once they've entered into their second year of being their own independent, autonomous, right? Um, kind of uh, a community... The Prophet ﷺ is also making them take a step forward. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is instituting the practice. He's divinely ordaining a practice and basically, um, you know, demanding of the Muslims to, you know, take a step forward in terms of the establishment of their deen as well. Where now the fasting of an entire consecutive month in the month of Ramadan has become instituted. And this was a major cause and a major factor in the continued spiritual progression and development of not just the individuals but the entire community. However, at the same time what I want to point out is, there's also a profound wisdom in the fact that this happens in the second year. And not in the first year. Because this is also from the prophetic model, that people are allowed to, were given time to kind of gradually grow into their deen and religion. Now, what we understand is that, basically somebody grows into their deen or their religion in, an, in one of two ways, basically. Or we can say at the most, if you want to be very specific, one of three ways. Either somebody is born into a Muslim family and they're practicing, the family is practicing. So what ends up happening, that's why we don't, you know, make children fast from the very, you know, start. But fasting does, become, does not become mandatory or obligatory until they reach the age of puberty or adulthood, maturity. Right, the maximum which is 15 according to a lot of the fuqaha. Right, so it could be 12, it could be 13, 14, 15, something around there. That's when fasting becomes mandatory. However, when you look at the hadith about salah, that is also when salah becomes mandatory. But the Prophet ﷺ teaches us the kind of methodology of this, that you start telling them to pray with you and really emphasizing prayer. You pray from the very beginning, so your children see you praying. They start to imitate you and try to pray along with you. But you more systematically and more um, consistently make them pray with you from the age of seven, and then from the age of 10, you basically make it um, important and a part of their daily schedule and regimen to where not praying even has consequences, like not doing homework has consequences, not praying has consequences, so that when they reach that age of maturity, it's not like you're turning the switch. 
Otherwise, if I never tell my child anything about you know, praying or fasting for the month, in the month of Ramadan, for that matter, never breathe a word of it, never mention it, never talk about it, never emphasize it. Then one day, all of a sudden, when they turn 15, I'm like, by the way, uh, in about a week, you're going to have to fast for 30 days, and you have to pray five times a day, every day, for the rest of your life. All right, good, see you later. Th- that's, that's not how people work. And then that's when we have like all these issues, and oh, my kid doesn't want to pray. Really? You know, because you didn't work them into this. You didn't ease them into this. This is the prophetic mercy and wisdom. That from that age of 7 or 8 or 10, right? You start getting them to fast with you in Ramadan. They're praying with you five times a day. So when that age of maturity comes, whenever it comes, at 13 or at 15 or whenever, that basically, I mean, without, without a hiccup, they're just, they're, they're, they keep rolling. It's all good. But, so that's one scenario. The other scenario is somebody accepts Islam. Right? Somebody accepts Islam later in their life. Right? That's something where we have to look back at the prophetic model. And we do have to observe the prophetic methodology. And we understand that these commands became ordained over time. And so, what we need to understand is that people might need some time to kind of ease into this. Right? Somebody who accepts Islam later on in their life, fasting was nothing they could have even thought of in their wildest dreams. Right? Not eating or drinking even water for 15 hours a day, 16 hours a day, when it's triple digits outside, is something that would never even occur to them. So it might take them some time, and we have to be sensitive to that. And we have to be careful and cautious in that regard. Our idea is to facilitate the deen for people and get people to practice and live their deen, not break people. Like, well, I guess they couldn't cut it. This ain't training camp, right? They're not trying out for a football team where you want to get them to the breaking point to see if you can break them. If they don't break, I guess they were good for us, for our team. It's not, it's not professional sports. It's somebody's faith and iman and somebody's salvation. You don't get to play with that. You have to be very sensitive in this regard. And the third scenario, to be a little bit more specific, is maybe somebody isn't actually accepting Islam, like Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah, later on in their life. But maybe somebody just did not grow up knowing or practicing the deen at all. And they're starting to practice their deen later on in their life. That's a similar type scenario. They are now maybe not embracing iman. They had some loose idea. Yes, I believe in Allah and the Messenger of Allah. But they are now embracing their religion though. Right? They're, they're consciously choosing to practice their religion later on in life. And, and again, there might be some gradual growth. And we have to be very patient and sensitive and cautious in that regard. Right? And go back and study the seerah. This is part of the problem. When we purely just study fiqh, rules and regulations and legalities and do's and don'ts, and we don't understand the human context of it, then we'll, we'll run amok. Right, so it's very important to combine every aspect of the study of our deen together, so that we have a, uh, we have a proper understanding, the prophetic understanding, the proper, the Islamic understanding of how to practice our deen and religion. So these were just uh, some of the finer points I wanted to make about the second year of hijrah and some of the practices that were instituted. What time is Salat al-Isha today? 9.15? Okay, we have a few more minutes, so I'll mention this. Um, it won't take too much time. But I've talked in detail about the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ before. 
Um, and I think I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I'll just kind of reiterate it here again just a couple of minutes because we just have a couple of minutes remaining um, because this is exactly when it occurred. So in the description of the Masjid of the Prophet and there's a session that you can go back and listen to that in detail describes Al-Masjid al-Nabawi al-Sharif, the Prophet Wasallam's Masjid Mosque in Medina to Munawwara. Um, and all the description of it. But basically he talks about how the pillars of the masjid were made from the trunks of trees, um, the walls were mud and clay and stones, the roof of the masjid was branches of the trees with leaves kind of scattered to cover the gaps between them. Similarly, at the front of the masjid, there was a tree stump. There was a tree stump that was at the front of the masjid. And this basically served as kind of a makeshift mimbar for the Prophet ﷺ. For the first year and a half of the Prophet ﷺ's stay in al Madinatul Munawwara, his residence there, where he would lean against it, he would sit on it, he would even sit on the ground and kind of place his back up against it. And that's what the Prophet ﷺ used to use. So... The Prophet ﷺ actually inquired of the Sahaba that it, you know, because the congregation as it was growing, the Prophet ﷺ said that we should build like a mimbar. Just something small, something humble, um, to where it was a couple of steps, so that he could basically go and stand up on it, or he could sit on top of it, right? And basically address the community from there. And it was actually a woman, it was a Sahabiya, it was a Muslim woman, who hired a worker... Um, to go and build a mimbar, and she gifted it to the Prophet ﷺ in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. The first mimbar in Islam was actually gifted and given by a woman. Um, and so, um, this mimbar was basically placed in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. The very first time when the Prophet ﷺ basically got up, and he went and he sat on the mimbar. So he was sitting and leaning against that same tree stump, and... Um, he was leaning against uh, the tree stump, and at that time, they came and uh, they... And so the, the, the tree stump, a lot of times, it had a name as well, they used to refer to it Al-Astuwana. They used to refer to it as Al-Ustuwana. Ustuwana basically means pillar, but they used to refer to it as the pillar. And so the Prophet ﷺ was leaning against it, and they came and they placed the mimbar. So the Prophet ﷺ got up and went and sat on the mimbar. When he went and he sat on the mimbar, the narrations mention, and I actually want to mention this to you, this is really fascinating. Uh, Hafid Abu Fath, also known as Ibn Sayyid al-Nas, he's a scholar of hadith who's compiled a book of, who's written a book of the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ called Uyun al-Athar, a very, uh, one of the classical and solid references of the seerah. Um, he actually mentions here, He's actually compiled all of this together, or excuse me, he relates from Qadi Ayyad. Qadi Ayyad in his Ashifa actually mentions that this narration about the Ustuwana, about this pillar that I'm going to tell you right now, is narrated by more than a dozen Sahaba. 
more than a dozen sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, they mentioned this particular narration of this pillar and this original member of the Prophet ﷺ. Amongst them is Ubayy ibn Ka'ab, Jabir ibn Abdullah, Anas ibn Malik, Abdullah ibn Umar, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Sahal ibn Sa'ad, Sa'idi, Abu Sa'id ibn Khudri, Bureda, Ummu Salama, uh, Mutallab ibn Abi Wada'a. All of these sahaba relate this hadith um, radiallahu ta'ala anhum ajma'in, may Allah be pleased with all of them. And Imam At-Tirmidhi rahimahullahu uh, ta'ala has uh, mentioned the hadith of Anas, quoting it as sahih. So this is an authentic narration that comes from at least a minimum of a dozen different routes. So in, from the perspective of usul hadith, this is a very, very extremely sound narration. Alright, sound narration that is at the minimum at the level of mashhur. A very well-known, well-reputed and extremely authentic narration. So when the Prophet ﷺ gets up and he moves to the mimbar, the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, all of them who narrate this hadith, they say that we heard kind of like a moaning or a groaning or a crying sound coming from that pillar. And it was audible. All of us could hear it. And it really kind of... Everybody didn't know what to think of it. Everybody was a little taken aback, like what's going on? And the Prophet ﷺ realizing exactly what it was, he stood up. And the Prophet ﷺ went over to the pillar and he placed his hand on it. One narration says, فَوَضَعَ يَدَهُ عَلَيْهِ He placed his hand on it. One other narration even says, فَأَحْضَنَتْهُ That the Prophet ﷺ embraced it. Meaning like he sat down next to it. And the Prophet ﷺ started to say, Uskuni, Uskuni. Be calm, be calm, relax, it's okay. Until finally that sound stopped coming from there. And the Prophet ﷺ in the narration even mentions that this tree will be, this stump will be planted for the love that it showed the Messenger ﷺ. This stump will be planted in Jannah and will be a tree from which the awliya of Allah, the friends of Allah will eat the fruits of it. That was the virtue of that stump, of showing such love to the Prophet ﷺ. In, in some specific narrations, it actually mentions um, that, حَتَّى إِرْتَجَّ الْمَسْجِدُ بِخُوَارِهِ it cried so loud that the walls of the masjid began to shake. One narration says, وَكَثُرَ بُكَاءُ النَّاسِ لِمَا رَأَوْ بِهِ Everybody in the masjid started crying when they witnessed this. In another narration, the Prophet ﷺ, he actually says, he mentions that, إِنَّ هَذَا بَكَاءَ لِمَا فَقَدَ مِنَ الذِّكْرِ That the reason why this tree stump cried today was it missed the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that used to occur from it. It wasn't just the love of Allah, it, was also the, it wasn't just the love of the Messenger it was the love of Allah, and the love of the dhikr of Allah, and the love of the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that used to be mentioned, and the love of the Qur'an that used to be recited from it. And this is exactly why Al-Hasan al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala whenever he would relate this hadith, فَكَانَ الْحَسَنُ إِذَا حَدَّثَ بِيَادَ الْحَدِيثِ بَكَى he would cry. Thumma ya ibad Allah. And then he would say, Oh people. Like he'd be talking to the people in the masjid, he'd say, Oh people. Al khashabatu tahinu ila Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam shawqan ilayhi. Li makanihi min Allahi azza wa jal. He says that a piece of wood 
an inanimate object, a piece of wood, misses the Prophet ﷺ, loves the Prophet ﷺ, because it understands the position of the Messenger ﷺ in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It understands what the position of the Messenger ﷺ is near Allah. And so it cries, and it misses the Messenger of Allah ahaku So you are even more so deserving, meaning it's even more appropriate for you to miss the Prophet ﷺ. And to respect the Prophet ﷺ, to learn about the Prophet ﷺ, to talk about the Prophet ﷺ. What's wrong with us? That a, a dead tree, a tree stump, has more awareness of who the Messenger ﷺ is than we do? Ajeeb. And so he used to remind and reprimand people um, whenever he would bring up this narration. And of course some of the narrations about the mimbar of the Prophet ﷺ, once that mimbar was placed, we all know the virtues the Prophet ﷺ says, مَا بَيْنَ قَبْرِي وَمِنْبَرِي رَوْدَةٌ مِنْ رِيَادِ الْجَنَّةِ مَا بَيْنَ بَيْتِي وَمِنْبَرِي رَوْدَةٌ مِنْ رِيَادِ الْجَنَّةِ That between my home and between my mimbar is a garden from the gardens of paradise, between my grave. And actually he was foretelling that he would pass away there in that apartment of his, that home of his. Between there and between the mim- my mimbar is a garden from the gardens of paradise and uh, one other narration the Prophet ﷺ, it's a hadith of Jabir عنه, that Imam Ahmad mentions in his Musnad he says that my mimbar is placed on a stream from the streams of paradise my mimbar is placed upon a stream from the streams of, from the streams of paradise so inshallah we'll go ahead and stop and pause here um, what we're going to be talking about in from the next session on forward, insha'Allah, we're going to start talking about the Battle of Badr. And as of course, as we always do, uh, we try to get into as much detail and learn lessons from it as much as we can from the life of the Prophet Wasallam. So we'll talk about what led to the Battle of Badr, when it happened, why it happened, how it happened. We'll go through all the details, insha'Allah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to study the life of the Prophet Wasallam, And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the love of Rasulullah Wasallam. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the ability to follow the example of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahu wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta, nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayhi.